Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, and welcome to episode 158 of Historically Thinking. My guest today is Thomas J. McSweeney, professor of law at the William and Mary Law School in Williamsburg, Virginia. He earned both his JD and his PhD in history from Cornell University and is the author of Priests of the Law, Roman Law and the Making of the Common Law's First Professionals, which is the subject of today's conversation. Tom, thank you for joining us on Historically Thinking. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, this is a, a great book, although um, it's, uh, it is a, a specialized series of legal history. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I uh, have to realize is that we, we don't want to get too deep in the weeds too fast. So let's begin with uh, defining some terms. Uh, let's start with the ones that are right in the subtitle. Uh, what, first of all, is common law? Okay. So um, one thing I could do here, I, I could kind of lay out the, the development a little bit, if you'd like, of, of common law and Roman law, because you've got yeah, a little please, bit of a, please, please. Yeah, you've, you've, you've got some parallel development going on in the Middle Ages. So my book is really about the period between about 1220 and 1260 in England, the events that are happening in that, that period. And that's an important time for the development of law in England and in Europe more generally. So if you look at the 12th and 13th centuries, this is an important period for law in Western Europe. Historians sometimes call this the legal revolution. When the antecedents of what today are the world's two major families of legal systems, common law and civil law, get their start. So right around the beginning of the 12th century, Roman law suddenly becomes really popular. And we don't really know why. Different scholars have different theories about why it becomes so popular right around that time. What are some of the theories? Let's, let's play around those because this is a, this is a in, in many ways this is is an important a moment, even if not more important than the discovery the rediscovery of Aristotle. Sure. So one of one of the major theories is that you get interest in Roman law because people rediscover copies of Justinian's Digest, which is this major compilation of Roman law from the sixth century that hadn't really been read in the early Middle Ages. Um, so the dis- rediscovery of the Digest might be might have something to do with it. It might have to do with um, kind of the the growth of commercial life in northern Italy around this time, which is really the epicenter of um, of the, the Roman law revival. Um, it could have to do with professionalization of certain groups in Northern Italy around this time. We don't really have a firm answer on why, as to why this happens. Um, and, and what do we mean by Roman law? Yeah, so Roman law, um, what we're talking about actually, there's Roman law of like the classical period. We're talking about like the, the Roman Republic and the empire. That comes down to the Middle Ages through uh, texts that are made in the 6th century by the Emperor Justinian. He gets a bunch of lawyers and law professors and government officials together to compile uh, texts from the classical period of Roman law into these texts called the Digest, which is basically a collection of jurists' opinions, the Codex, which is a collection of, of imperial legislation, and the Institutes, which is like a first-year law textbook. Hmm. And those texts are, are sort of the primary sources of Roman law. So when people in the Middle Ages start to study Roman law, that's what they're studying, these sixth century compilations of the classical Roman law. Uh, and they tend to associate Roman law, uh, they tend to associate it with Christianity. They think of the empire as a Christian entity, and they tend to think of it as sort of a universal law, that it's the universal secular law of Christendom something like that. So you get this renewed interest in Roman law around this time. It happens so quickly, some people, some scholars have called it the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, we see interest in canon law increasing. And canon law is the law of the church. And there had been canon law collections made throughout the early Middle Ages. And there's actually a big literature on canon law in the early Middle Ages. But you get a certain degree of systematization of canon law that happens around the same time of this Roman law revival 
in the early 12th century. And why would the church need its own system of law? Well, People might ask that. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, we tend to think of, of religious thought as taking place sort of within the field of theology. In the Middle Ages, a lot of important religious thought took place through the medium of law. So canon law is where a lot of the action is. So the church is thinking about issues like marriage. When is a marriage formed, right? I, when, when, do, when, does that, when does the marriage become valid and at that point, you know, unbreakable? Uh, those sorts of things. The church has courts throughout Europe to kind of enforce these rules, right, about are these people married or not? And they need people to staff those courts. So you have people going to school and getting trained in canon law so that they can they can work in those courts in the ecclesiastical administration. There's a lot of thought about uh, sort of the corporate life of the church that takes place in the context of law. So you might actually even think of, of canon law as, as being the origin of modern corporate law in some ways, because that's where you get this kind of what we would think of as constitutional thought about what the church is as a corporation. Uh, that all, a lot of that happens in the context of law, not in the context of theology. Mm-hmm. And, and the church owns considerable lands. Sure. Uh, and, it, and its justice applies, its justice often applies or always, not always, nothing is always, but often applies on those lands rather than other systems of justice. So, so in England, the way the way the law develops is that uh, the church the church also churches often have secular jurisdiction that's not run by canon law. But churches, um, so for instance, if if a church if land has been given to the church in a particular way, if it's been given to the church in what they call free alms, that land is within the 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 disposition of that land is within the exclusive jurisdiction of the church courts. So the royal courts can no longer make decisions about that land. Uh, so they have jurisdiction over that sort of thing. Um, the ecclesiastical courts in England have jurisdiction over uh, probated administration of, of personal property anyway. So when somebody dies, uh, the church is actually the place where you would take the will. You would take the will to the church court. The church court would decide whether it's a valid will or not. And the church court would, would manage the distribution of the property. Uh, so they had jurisdiction over over important areas of life uh, uh-huh. in the Middle Ages and through through the early modern period. So we've got the canon law, and that's under the the Gratian, right? Is the name that usually pops up with canon law. So Gratian, right? Is I uh, we now think that Gratian. So Gratian writes a, a text called the Decretum uh-huh. uh, in the middle decades of the of the twelfth uh, century. And that becomes basically the standard textbook of, of canon law uh, for a while through, um, throughout Europe. Um, and so that in some ways systematizes the way it creates a, it creates a particular way of teaching, uh, teaching law by um, putting texts that appear to conflict with each other hmm. into conversation with each other. So you take one That's- text that says A, another that says B, and try to reconcile them. Well, that sounds familiar, but we'll get back to that. We'll get That's back right. to that. <laughs> That's right. um, so this is so it's been it's a tremendously important moment for Roman law for canon law. Right. Why twelve twenty? Why is twelve twenty beginning at that period? Why is that important in English law? Okay, so in English law, so you've got you've got Roman and canon law that are are being you know being taught taught throughout Europe. You get this. Uh, there's an important moment for for what we call the common law around the same time. So. Um, common law is the kind of legal system we have in the U.S. Uh, it's the kind of legal system that exists in most former British colonies today. And we generally think of the birth of the common law as happening during the reign of King Henry II. So Henry's a really important king. He tends to get overshadowed because his sons are more famous than him. <laughs> Richard the Lionheart and Bad King John of Magna Carta fame. And they're, they're really hard to compete with in the historical imagination. But Henry is an important king in his own right. And in the 1160s, Henry starts a pretty ambitious series of reforms, many of which have to do with the provision of royal justice, and many of which become things that we think of as hallmarks of the common law in later centuries. So Henry is generally said to be the father of the common law. Through Henry's reign and Richard's and John's reigns, there's a lot of experimentation with the courts. Henry creates new royal courts. He sends teams of justices into the counties to hear cases in his name. Those courts are called air courts, as 
heir is in Jane. Uh, so the idea is the king brings his justice to you. And he establishes a bunch of new procedures. If you wanted to bring a case before the king's justices, after Henry II, you could purchase a document called a writ from the king's chancery, which is his writing office. And the writ's basically a standard form complaint. It sets the machinery of justice in motion so the king's court would hear your case. And Henry's real advance was to create writs that came in standard forms and to make them fairly cheap. So this regularized royal justice, more people had access to the king's courts. Another big innovation in Henry's reign was the use of the jury. Many of the new procedures Henry and his counselors created involved a jury. This was essentially a way of getting local people to do the king's job for him. But trial by jury is generally seen as a hallmark of, the, of common law systems, right? This is something that, that lasts in these systems. So Henry introduces these regular and fairly accessible procedures, and it really changes the role of the king's courts in English, uh, in English justice. So at the beginning of Henry's reign, the king has a court. Not many people bring litigation in the king's court, though. It's a court that's mostly reserved for the greater lords who hold their land directly from the king. By 1200 or so, it's become pretty much the ordinary venue for lawsuits concerning land, at least for free people. And by the early 13th century, the English courts have created a lot of new writs. So they bring new types of cases into the, into the royal court. And they've created a fairly complicated body of rules around those writs. And by about the 1260s, people are referring to that body of rules pretty consistently as the common law, meaning the law that's common to the whole kingdom. So to emphasize this, um, there were courts before. The king's sure. not inventing courts, but they're going to be courts run by the local lord, correct? Right. So that that would be what justice was for most people was going to the, where they wouldn't even call them justice of peace at that time, would they? They'd be going to the local lord for judgments. They would be going to their lord, right? The lord of yeah. the manor. They might they might be going to the the county court. Was it was also um, was also a venue for for lawsuits. The hundred court, a hundred was a division of the county. So you had you had lots of different courts in England. What what really changes is the the role of the royal court. The royal court becomes much more important and central to the whole system. All of a sudden, there has a there's a new role that the king has a. Well, not daily, but a monthly. He's he's much closer to the ground, as it were, uh, in in not obviously in his in his own person, but in the justice that he represents to people. Right. So it's a it's a revolution in royal power, but it's also a revolution in the power of the people. Um, in in in, in as a member of a jury, you suddenly have an unusual status that you didn't have before under the previous legal system. There, there is something to that, right? That the that jury service, although it it is interesting when you read about jury service in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, the um, kind of the evidence is mixed on how people felt about it. There are times when people demand a jury. You do find that you know where people think it's to their advantage to have a jury. You find other you know, <laughs> there are other times when you know people hated jury duty in the thirteenth century as much as they hate it today. Yeah. People avoid juries all the time. The number of cases where, you know, you, you read that, well, the case couldn't be heard because the jury didn't show up or something like that. Um, and you actually have some doubt right around the early 13th century about um, whether juries should be used in the criminal context. I, so um, prior to the, to the general use of the criminal jury, the way the way felons were tried was, uh, or accused felons were tried, was by by judicial ordeal, where you would, uh, you know, be um, put in a pool of water to see if you you sank or floated, those sorts of things. Um, and uh, once they start trying people by jury, there are people who who sort of push back and say, well, you know, you're you're going to replace God's judgment with the judgment of of twelve schlubs from the neighborhood. Yeah, who, uh, actually, I, I, who actually know me. That's very dangerous. I'd rather take the water, thanks. <laughs> right, yeah. And it, there's there's a case, I think, from 1220 where where some where the, um, the royal court had used a jury to condemn somebody to death, and the family came and complained so that they, the person's lands uh, or the person's chattels had, had forfeited to the crown. 
and the family comes back to try to get the chattels back and says, you know, like, look, you, you can't you can't sentence to someone to death based on the verdict of a jury. And the court agrees with them in that case. The court says, no, you're right. You know, we, we shouldn't have sentenced a person to death on the basis of a jury verdict. Hmm. So let's um, before we get to the sort of the heart of the matter, let's um, a few more things. You, you um, you're referring to something called Bracton. Right, which um, most listeners are not going to know what that is unless they, you know, serve time in law school. Right. So, and maybe not even then. Uh, but so, what is Bracton? So, Bracton is this massive legal treatise that's written between the 1220s and basically the late 1250s. It's written in Latin. In its modern printed edition, it's it's about 1,200 pages long. So <laughs> huge. And it's um, meant to be sort of a, a comprehensive and systematic um, treatise on the workings of the king's courts. But it's a really weird text in a lot of ways. One of them is it really tries to describe what's going on in the king's courts using the language of Roman law. So it uses a lot of Roman law terminology. It draws parallels between Roman law actions and actions in the royal courts. Um, it's it's written in this. It's it actually is modeled on a treatise that was written by a Roman law scholar, a man named Azzo, who was teaching in Bologna in the uh, in Italy in the early 13th century. He was sort of the rock star of Roman law in the early uh, the early 13th century. He had a had a you know an international rep- reputation. Um, so it's written by a succession of royal justices, people who work in the royal courts. And um, Bracton is one of those interesting texts because it, it pretty much becomes part of the common law canon. It's one of those texts that people refer to uh, when they when they want to make the case that some rule goes back to the beginning of the common law. So it's seen as sort of a foundational text for common law, um, cited by the Supreme Court about once a term or once every other term. Um, so it, it pops up a lot in the writing. Um, and there's, there's been some excellent work on Bracton. There's, there's a, a long kind of literature on, on Bracton and, and who wrote it and when it was written and those sorts of things uh, and sources. Um, in the book, I wanted to turn from Bracton. I didn't want to talk, I didn't want the book to be about Bracton so much as about the people who wrote it what Bracton could tell us about those justices who thought it was a good idea in the early to middle decades of the 13th century to spend their spare time writing a massive Latin treatise, you know, that, uh, that probably very few people could, could really effectively use, right. Mm -hmm. That uh, it's, it's a very highbrow piece of work. So I want to, I want to, tease that apart, that decision of yours apart by also talking about something that we were talking about before we started recording. Uh, I, as I was thinking about your book, um, I was thinking, yeah, you know, German historical study, uh, sort of modern history in Germany begins with von Ranke. It begins with the Reformation, just mm-hmm. a tremendously important moment for uh, German nationalist idea of what this German thing is. Mm-hmm. When English historians started to go about beginning the modern scientific historical study in England, what's What's the this English thing? Well, by golly, it's the English Constitution, and that mm-hmm. means the common law. And so we've got people like Sir Henry Maine and then the F.W. Maitland, who are you know the first English medievalists in many ways, but right. they're also the first English research historians. Um, so this is you're 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 plowing some of the oldest fields in English speaking historical study, right? Yeah, um, no. This, that- this is a very old study. Uh, you would think this had been all exhausted by now. That, that's true. And, and Maitland, I mean, Maitland relied heavily on Bracton for his history yep. of English law before, uh, uh, before the time of Edward I, right? Bracton is one of his major sources for that. Um, and I, he actually, um, well, he, he made an edition of a text that was probably created by Bracton and things like that. So Bracton, yeah, Bracton has has been sort of part of the the universe of of texts used by uh, by uh, historians of of English history for a long time. Um, 
And I'm trying to, to re-enter that debate, uh, the kind of debates that, that people like Maitland were, in, were engaged in, because one of the big issues that you see uh, starting in the 19th century, it actually, it, 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 sort of, um, it sort of develops out of even earlier debates within, within the common law profession, right? Within people who work in the common law about the Englishness of English law. That there's this sort of traditional narrative that um, the English common law is is uh, is distinctly English, uh, and that it's something that sort of grew up out of the ground in England, was unpolluted by that continental civil law stuff, right? The stuff uh-huh. that descends from Roman and canon law, um, and that was a story that you know various points in its history, right? Common law or the the people who work in the common law have engaged more or less with civil law. And there have been moments where they've been more, more on the nationalist side of things and have pushed this mm-hmm. idea that civil, you know, Roman law is, is um, I, Roman law is antithetical to English ideas of liberty and that sort of thing. Right. So like, for example, it's, you know, it's nasty Roman law and Justinian and all the rest of that stuff. And you see this in the Inquisition procedure that allows right. judi- judicial torture uh, right. to achieve evidence. Right. Um, never mind the fact that if you don't make a plea during before right. you know grand jury, you can get the what plain adieu. Pain for what they do, right? Yeah, pain for crushed to death, right? Yeah, right. That, which is what right. happens in the Salem witch trials. It's a very old English procedure, right? Uh, old enough that it has an Anglo-Norman name. Um, right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So there's that. There's that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, that this right. is you know English good, continental bad. Right. And there have been a lot of scholars who have worked very hard to show uh, to show Roman and canon law influence on the on the common law. Um, I, I I have to say I have not been fully convinced by a lot of the, the the scholarship on that. It tends to focus on adoption of uh, particular rules and doctrines from Roman law, and um, it's. I haven't I haven't found the arguments to be be all that convincing in most cases as to the, the adoption of rules of, and doctrines into the common law. And in fact, you do find instances in the 13th century where where there are people who who are kind of inimical to the idea of Roman or canon law, um, Roman and canon law rules coming into the common law. But what you see in Bracton is something it's it's not exactly that they're not adopting um, Roman and canon law rules into the common law. These justices who wrote Bracton are people who I, I think really wanted to show that the common law was part of the broader legal culture of Europe, which they associated, or they would have thought of it as Christendom more likely, right? That they would have, mm-hmm. they would have, um, perceived the, the relevant unit as Christendom. Um, they, um, they thought that, that they they thought there was a, a general legal culture, you know, to Christendom that that was character by, characterized by Roman and canon law, and they wanted to show that the common law was part of that, uh, so that common law really is a to them a branch of the civil law. I think, mm-hmm. and that's that's what we're seeing in Bracton. It's these justices trying to show that the work that they're doing in the common law courts already, right, the stuff that they're doing is actually perfectly in line with Roman and canon law. They're trying to reconcile the work they do with Roman and canon law, not to change the rules of the common law, but to show that it's already it's already in line with, with Roman and canon law. Um, they do that in a bunch of different ways. It's interesting that they, they do it by trying to reconcile doctrines, even when those doctrines actually run pretty clearly counter to each other, that a rule of, of common law seems to, seems to butt heads with the rule of Roman law. They, try to find ways to show, no, these things actually can be reconciled to each other. So let's talk about some of these, these you have three guys in particular that you're, you're yeah. focusing on. Uh, Martin of Pettishel, William yep. of Raleigh, and Henry yep. of Bratton, who yep. erroneous, well, people erroneously have given his name, uh, his place name to the compilation of Bracton. Uh, we'll get to that. But who are these? What are their bios? Uh, who where are they? Where do they come from? Um, what do we know about them? And how do they create this thing called Bracton and this thing called the legal, the English legal profession? Yeah. So uh, they're really interesting people. So um, Martin of Padishal is uh, 
is a he, he becomes a justice in the generation right, right after Magna Carta, right after the civil war that takes place um, as, after Magna Carta essentially fails. Right. Um, he, he becomes a justice in the central uh, royal courts and kind of helps to put the courts back together after the civil war. And he's kind of a new type of justice in the early 13th century. So um, in the 12th century, justices tended to be people who served on the royal courts every now and then. They were royal officials of some kind who the king would appoint, you know, periodically to sit on the royal courts. So they, they weren't full-time justices. Their, their work usually was in the exchequer or they were a bishop. You know, or they were a magnate, you know, there's an earl or a baron or something like that who would get appointed to sit as royal justices. Martin of Padishal uh, seems to start his career as a clerk in the royal courts. He starts as a, a clerk to a man named Simon of Padishal, who does not seem to have been a relative. They were just from the same village in Northamptonshire. Uh, and so that's probably that's probably how the patronage network worked, was that uh-huh. Simon knew of Martin from I, from from Padishal, hires him to be his clerk, and he works as his clerk for quite a while. We don't know exactly how long, but works for for uh, for Simon for for probably you know a good decade. And then when Simon retires, Martin becomes a justice himself. Hmm. Um, and then that becomes the career path. Like it's not the career path that every justice follows in the 13th century, not not by a long shot, but that becomes a fairly common career path in the 13th century. So William of Raleigh is Martin of Padishal's clerk. Henry of Bratton is William of Raleigh's clerk. Um, And that's the really interesting thing about these people like Martin of Padishal is that they're they're really the first professional justices in the royal courts. Um, They're people who spend pretty much their entire careers in the royal courts and spend pretty much all their time at any given point in their career working in the royal courts. So they're not doing a lot of other stuff for the crown. They're pretty much just clerks and justices. Um, so they're, you know, they're kind of, they're specializing in this kind mm-hmm. of work. And that's, that's the key thing with these guys is that they're specialists in law, that that's, that's what they, that's what they do. So, so why is it this moment again? I mean, is it because of the having to put the royal courts together after uh, the Civil War and John's death and Henry the Third is is a is a baby basically uh, yeah. child. I mean, is that is does that give the opportunity for this uh, for these guys to sort of uh, take advantage of this situation? There's a situation to be taken advantage of. I'm not I'm not saying right. taken advantage in a negative way. I'm just saying there's 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 work to be done to put things back together again. Well, I think I think there are a couple of things go, going on here. One is um, the courts in the in, in that. When they're trying to, when people are trying to put the country back together after the Civil War, the courts are one of the few institutions I think that everybody likes, right? That are are actually fairly popular in England. In fact, Magna Carta um, criticizes John for some of the ways in which he uses the courts, but when it comes to provision of royal justice, Magna Carta asks for more of it, not less. They mm-hmm. want they want they wanted John to run his courts the way they wanted them run. They wanted, they they basically said, we want you to run them fairly, but we want more Royal justice, not less of it. We like this stuff that Henry II came up with. Um, And so I think, I think people look to the courts uh, for, um, yeah, they look to the courts uh, as, as sort of a place where, where they can find unity. And in fact, um, you find the Henry III's um, guardians when when they put together the courts after um, you know after the Civil War, they they tend to make sure that they're appointing you know people who are on both sides of the Civil War to the courts. Huh. But then you also have these guys who have the expertise, right? Who are working in those courts full time and have been there a long time. And so you find when they send out air circuits, they'll um, they'll do things like. You know, they'll have the they'll they'll list the justices on the air court in order of precedence. And it's like, you know, the first two guys on that list will be one guy who had been a rebel and one guy who had been a supporter of John, you know, hmm. two two important magnets or something like that. And then the third guy on that list will be basically a professional, will be one of the will be one of the specialist justices. 
And usually he's the one they give the articles of the air, the instructions on how the air is to be run. So there's a sense in which I think they need these guys. And part of that is just because this law is becoming so complex. There, it actually is becoming a complicated field that's, that's difficult for somebody who's not, you know, who's um, not trained in it to navigate. And so these people actually are kind of important to that. But I think they're also sort of trusted as neutral parties in a way that they're, they're not, they're not seeing, they could be pretty political, but I, I think that there is a growing sense that they're less political than, than other kinds of figures. So have they been, these men, this, have Martin and William and Henry, have they all been trained in the law at university? I mean, how, how does legal education work? So we don't, we don't really know about their education. This is one of the frustrating things about being a medievalist that <laughs> you could be chief justice of the court of King's bench in the, in the 13th century, like William of Raleigh, we have, you know, we we know from your place name that you're from uh, that that you're from uh, from Raleigh um, in in Devonshire, uh, but uh, apart from that, we don't we don't know when he was born. I uh, we we really you know we really only know about these people once they enter the records of the royal administration or the ecclesiastical administration when there was a reason to record something about them, and so for the most part, we don't know much about these people until they enter royal service. From Bracton, we can be pretty sure that at least some of the people who wrote it had a pretty extensive education in Roman law. Uh, that education seems to have focused a little bit more on Roman law than canon law, or at least the authors of Bracton are more focused on Roman law than canon law. Um, my guess is that Somebody like Henry of Bratton probably was educated in a university. The schools are developing in this period. Um, Oxford and Cambridge both develop. They develop in the late 12th, early 13th centuries um, and may have developed specifically around the teaching of Roman and canon law initially. Um, so I like by the by the early 13th century, you could go to Oxford and um, and learn Roman law. Um I wouldn't be surprised if that's, you know, I, I make this point in the book that, you know, there, there are some things that could potentially tie, um, tie some of the authors of the book to, to Oxford. Uh, it could have been any number of other places. There were lots of places you could learn Roman mm -hmm. law uh, in England, but the authors of Bracton definitely have some training in Roman law. And we, we know of some justices who, from, from other sources, we know studied, studied Roman law. So could you the the title of your book comes from a very powerful uh over the top yeah. uh line from Bracton. Do you have that in in your head or could you could you quote that for us so, um, um the, the whole the whole phrase the whole phrase? So let me see let me see if I can remember that. So it's I use I I U S right it's it's a Latin word for for either law or right in this case law. Use is is the uh, is called the art of what is fair and just of which we let's see of which uh we are just what was it justly or deservedly called the priests mm. where we worship justice and administer sacred rights um i hope that was right that was just off the top I, of my it's, head it's yeah it's very close enough um so that's like uh it's great because the title is actually sort of like your um it's like your hermeneutical key to the entire story um yeah. What does it mean? And what's the importance of that for you? So, so it's sort of interesting. I, I think um, the, uh, the main point here, I think, is that these people were imagining themselves as part, as part of some community, right? The, the, the pre, they were the priests of the law, right? They're imagining themselves as, as being part of some kind of community. In Bracton, when the author says, you know, of what, which we are deservedly called the priests, the we the author is referring to there uh, seems pretty clearly to be the justice, justices and clerks of the royal courts, right? Uh, that he's addressing justices and clerks just a little bit earlier in the text. So he's imagining this community of justices and clerks, but I think he's, he's also imagining that more broadly because it's actually that line was probably taken from Azo's Summa on the Institutes, on Justinian's Institutes. So it's this Roman law treatise that uh, was written in Bologna in the early 13th century. So they'd gotten it from Azo, where Azo is actually referring to the community of 
of Roman jurists, right, throughout throughout Christendom. And uh, he's actually quoting Ulpian, uh, who is a jurist of the classical period of Roman law, who's quoted in Justinian's Digest. So that's where that's where Azo gets it from. But I think I think in Bracton, it's it's interesting that it's that quote is in a way connecting the justices and clerks of the royal courts. They're they're the community that this that the author of Bracton is thinking about with uh, with the justices of Roman law working throughout Latin Christendom. Right, that this is this is a person who probably expected that the reader would know the source of of that quote. Hmm. Uh, I think, you know, the, the treatise assumes a certain level of knowledge of Roman law. And so like would wants the reader to imagine, right, that that they're they're part of this broader community of Roman jurists. Now, some of these, I, I, I believe it's Martin of Paschal or I mean, it actually becomes a bishop later on in his career. Is that, was that right? So I, uh, so there, all three of these guys are clerics. Yes. Uh, there were a decent number of clerics on the on the royal courts. Um, there, there was always a mix of clerics and laymen on the royal courts. Um, so there's, there's sort of an older literature that said they were dominated by clerics. That's not, that's not true. But these guys were, were all clerics. Martin uh, becomes the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral uh, in London. William of Raleigh becomes Bishop of Winchester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And uh, Henry of Bratton dies as uh, Chancellor of Exeter Cathedral. So all of them were priests in another sense. Um, they, they probably, yeah. Now they may not have actually been. They, they were clerics anyway. They, yes, um, right, they, may, they may have been deacons or something. You know, right. I, that's, at, least, that's true. at least until Episcopal ordination and that kind of. Right. But yeah, yeah, they were clerics at least, right? So it's uh, there's a sense in which they were actual, right? <laughs> they were right. actual. So, well. but as you point out, I mean, these are both they're both clerics and lay people amongst the uh, the clerks of the court. So he's so there. What what I find fascinating about that quote is, and given where they come from, they're as it were drawing a sort of professional circle around a different group of people. Now it, it can overlap. That it can be a Venn diagram of those who are clerics or priests, and then there those who are priests or clerics of the law. But they're they're reconceptualizing what we would now call a professional sphere. Is that is that am I taking that too far? No, I think I think that's I think that's probably right. You know that they are they are thinking they are thinking about themselves kind of through a different a, a different professional lens, right? That they're creating a they're creating a sphere uh, of of professionals of people who work with law, right? Mm-hmm. That they I think that is the big the big difference here is that these justices they're not they're not just specializing in judicial work or legal work. They're they're also they're taking their identity. Right from the fact that they're people who work with law, so they think they think about themselves primarily as people who work with law, and so they're trying to create that sphere, um, yeah, that sort of professional sphere. For, or, or, yeah. or is it, or are they thinking of it as a kind of, in a way that they might be more uh, familiar with or comfortable with? Are they thinking of it as sort of a? They're thinking of themselves as being at, throughout Christendom. As you've said, right? Yes. They have a right. they have a right. They're they're connected with all those people in Bologna and Northern Italy who are working on Roman law, and they're working on common law, and there are other people working on canon law and Gratian. So they're all part of this this these priests of the law. They're spread throughout Christendom. Is this a kind of vocation then, a sort of a, a particular calling, a religious calling, rather than maybe maybe a professionalization is too modern a term for this? It it might be. So yeah. So I don't. I, um, in terms of yeah, professionalization, I suppose, um, right. One, I mean, I definitely want to stick to kind of the medieval categories, and I talk about this a little bit in the introduction. That yes, I think um, it's it's not a profession in the modern sense, anyway, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not. They're not thinking of it in in quite the same way. They are thinking of it more as a vocation or as sort of a a type or. Um, or an order, right? Oh, so yeah. that, explain, explain that. Cause that's, that's a lovely point you make in the introduction about types and orders. And yeah. So, so there, there's been, uh, there's a fairly large literature on, um, whether, whether, uh, the concept of the individual in the middle ages, and I, I don't go too deeply into this in the book, but you know, one of the things I sort of touch on there is that, um, you know, there, it wasn't that people didn't think of themselves as individuals in the middle ages, 
but um, that they had a tendency to, uh, you know, view th- view themselves through the lens of particular particular orders or particular types, so or estates. You know, these these terms are kind of these terms are are used um, in the Middle Ages, and that different types of people uh, had sort of different vocations, different paths to salvation, and that sort of thing. And so I think you know these justices in England. Um, one of the problems that the people who work with law throughout Europe have is where do I fit into society? You have this kind of fairly traditional model um, that that sometimes use the tripartite model of society. You see this in some medieval texts where you have those those who work, those who pray, and those who fight. Uh, and um, and so lawyers, you know, lawyers, jurists don't easily fit into any of those. And Azo, you actually find you find Azo uh, using both the priest metaphor, right, for jurists and the knight metaphor for uh, for advocates, for practicing lawyers. So he's he's using two different orders for people, people who work with law. But I think, you know, in a way the Bracton authors were kind of casting around for, you know, so I'm I'm a I'm a royal justice. I work full time in the royal courts. That's what I do. Where do I fit into society? Right. What's my what's my estate? What's my order? And and the jurist was sort of, I think, uh, uh, an identity that they could attach themselves to. Right. That was something that yeah. was available to. And it's a problem in a hierarchical society where there are I mean, where we're, this where the classifications and labels are easily discerned by what one wears, by how sure. one looks. Um, you see this in all the I mean. You point this out in the introduction, and I thought back to Creation de Troyes and some of the Arthurian legends when they describe yokels or rustics. I mean, eh, they look like they look like a rustic. They look like right. a peasant. Yeah. Um, they're obvious to everybody. And but who is this guy? Who is a lawyer? Is he a priest? Is he a knight? I mean, how does it? How does that work? It's it's people can become a sort of social problem in a hierarchical society. Um, and, and so defining yourself becomes a sort of a way of, of including yourself. And I think that was a particular problem for, for these justices. Um, Martin of Padishal and so Martin of Padishal and Henry of Bratton in particular, we know very little about their family backgrounds, which doesn't necessarily, but might suggest that they were pretty humble origins. Um, and so like if, if they have authority, it it has you know where where is that going to come from, right? Where does their authority come from? Um, and part of that, you know, they 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 do gain some authority from their from their ordination, from any ecclesiastical offices they hold, and things like that. That that provides them with some status. So like once Martin of Padishal is dean of St. Paul's, he's he's an important cleric, right? So that provides him with some sense of identity. But I think they're also looking for a way to kind of assert their authority as royal justices. That the royal justice, that by itself, right, is is a status that's that's worthy of deference, um, as opposed to like the old style royal justice, where you know if if there was a, a royal justice who is who is an earl or a bishop or something like that, didn't take his authority from the fact that he was a royal justice. I mean, th- mm-hmm. that's not why people paid him deference, right? People had other reasons to pay him deference. He was an right. earl. Or bishop these guys didn't really have anything else to fall back on so does this work i mean have things changed by edward the first by the end of henry the third's reign and by the time his son edward the first becomes uh, is, is is crowned um do justices do even clerks of the court do they have a different social status within the kingdom so I, I think Bracton, in a lot of ways uh, is unsuccessful right so these these justices <laughs> seem to imagine that there's the you know the the educational you know pattern for for uh, royal justices should be should be this you know kind of Romanesque style you know style of education, um, that doesn't entirely take off. You do get you do get justices who are trained in Roman law even in the 14th century, and Bracton does see something of a you know make something of a comeback that's very hard to explain in the later 13th century. So towards the end of the century, that's when most of the manuscripts. Um, hmm. That survive were made uh, 1280s or 1290s, but um, yeah, I think I think in that sense they they don't transform the judiciary. Um, what ultimately happens is 
in the 14th century, the lawyers start to take it over. So you get practicing lawyers, the judges professionalize first, and then you start to, you get this growing profession of, of practicing lawyers who start to make their way into the judiciary in the very last decades of the 13th century, and then really, you know, come to dominate it by the end of the 14th. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, it, it doesn't actually transform, uh, doesn't actually transform the judiciary I think there is a sense in which it it might contribute um, to the way the judge is perceived in the common law, right? And and I I make this point, you know, kind of cautiously in the conclusion, so I don't want to put too much weight on it. There's there's been a lot of development in common law systems since the 13th century. A lot of changes have occurred, but one of the hallmarks of common law systems today is the centrality of the judge, right? That the, you know, we have judge made law in common law systems. The, the judges are the oracles of the law as mm-hmm. Blackstone said in the 18th century. And I think there, Bracton, Bracton and the generation of justices who created it may have contributed to that, right? That the sense that the judge is the law's oracle. Um, so, um, so it may have some lasting contribution to kind of the culture of of the common law. You mean to the um, the way in the common law that from this early time, the judges, well, I mean, to this day, we stand, uh, they wear different clothes. Yeah. Um, they're, they're set and they are literally set apart from everyone else in the room. Yeah. Uh, there is a way in which the judge is, remains a priest. Yes. Right. I mean, they, those, those robes, I mean, again, there's been a lot of development, but yes. you know, the, the clerical robes, you know, essentially, right? yes. you know it's, it's transformed into judicial, yeah, judicial garb um, in, in later centuries. So yeah, there is, there is a way in which I, even that Oracle metaphor, right. You know, puts, puts mm-hmm. things in, in religious terms, right. That the, yeah. that the judge is a kind of priest. So uh, Tom, now that you've uh, done this, uh, what's next? What are you, what are you working on now? If I might ask yeah. that, so uh, I, we've got all this free time now to work on. We're all being reminded that Shakespeare and Newton all did some of their best work during pandemics. So uh, that's you know, right. Well, well, so so I'm not sure that that uh, that Newton had had. Uh, well, I, I actually don't know to be honest, but had two two young children trying to build a pillow for it uh, around uh, he, him. He well, didn't. He did not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, but I, right now, I, I've actually moved on to some of the legal literature uh, after Bracton in the later 13th century, because in the, in the second half of the 13th century, you get this just explosion in treatise writing in, in England. There are <laughs> all, there are just lots of short treatises on various aspects of the common law written in Latin or French in the later 13th century, some on pleading, the kind of oral aspects of courtroom practice. Um, some on how to write writs, um, some on how to get the defendant to appear in court, and those sorts of things. And there has been there has been work done on these, but there are a number of them that have never been edited or translated. They exist only in manuscripts. So lately, I've been I've been transcribing uh, a, a short treatise that exists, as far as I know, in only one manuscript on how you practice in the courts of the city of Lincoln that was written around the year 1280. And we find these, we find these things, like there, there are a lot of survivals. So we, we have a lot of manuscripts of these things. Lawyers kept little handbooks in the late, thir- the late 13th century that we sometimes call statute books that would contain copies of a bunch of different treatises. These things are really you know, some of the earliest evidence we have for how lawyers learned law in the common law. Hmm. And there's so much to be done on them. We just don't, in a lot of cases, we don't know who wrote these things. Uh, some of them seem to have started out as lectures. We don't know who these lecturers were. So just trying to get some of this stuff edited, translated, and, you know, kind of dated and, and make connections between texts, I think will really flesh out what legal education was like in the later 13th century for these early generations of common lawyers. Let me finish with a little curveball, um, which is suggested uh-huh. by that. Um, this this podcast is called Historically Thinking, um, uh-huh. and it's based on the idea that um, each that history is a way of thinking and seeing and knowing. Uh-huh. Um, that there is in fact a, a pedagogy that goes with uh, historical that historical pedagogy should reflect the the way of doing history, uh, uh-huh. and often I know that. Uh, I and, and, and Lendl Calder and, and others uh, far greater than, than I, like Sam Weinberg, 
um, have looked to legal education uh, for as an example of a signature pedagogy, uh, which uh, reflects the way that uh, that law is actually done. That 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 pedagogy somehow uh, moves along with the way law is done. Um, the way that you are so rude to your students in class and, and <laughs> drill on them the way that a really obnoxious priest of the law called a judge would do in, in court, perhaps. Um, I, I'm actually kind of a softy, I have to admit. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> but uh, as I'm thinking about this, uh, some, some listeners might be saying, well, what, what does this, what does Bracton, what does this, come, what does this have to do with, with your, with Tom McSweeney's day job of, of training lawyers? Um, and so what I'm I'm wondering is um, is does Bracton help uh, lawyers think legally, right? If for in the is this part of legally thinking, um, or is it just an antecedent to the way that we think legally? So I, I think there are a couple of things there that um, so the reason why I'm interested in texts like Bracton and these texts in the later 13th century is I really am interested in lawyers and how we think about our work, and we we tend to we tend to attach. Um, we tend to attach a lot of meaning to our work, right? That, that lawyers are people who, um, all, you know, our, our status comes from the type of work we do, right? There's a lot of, there's, there tends to be a lot of status attached to, to that type of work, you know, but it, it really is, it's, it's a kind of profession that, that people often think of as, as more than just a job, right? It's, it's actually an identity. And um, so in the fall, I'm actually going to be teaching a, a, a professional responsibility course at William & Mary that takes a historical look at how people have thought about what it means to be a lawyer uh, in various different time periods. So it uses history to think through, you know, like, what does it actually mean to be a lawyer? How should we think about what it means to be a lawyer? The other thing with, with Bracton particularly is Bracton is great to, great to think through. Um, Bracton has really helped me think through property law in a lot of ways um, because uh, the way, the ways in which, these, these guys tried to systematize property law. It's, it's just fascinating. Um, one thing that I, I discovered, I was talking to, talking to a, a colleague, a uh, friend and colleague, James Stern, uh, who also teaches property. And we were talking about this, this idea in modern property law that's been, you know, it it's, comes out of law and economics that uh, the law of nuisance and the law of servitudes are just two sides of the same coin. Um, uh, nuisance laws is, is a servitude, like a right in somebody else's land that's imposed by law. Um, I don't think I don't think it's anywhere in the in the in sort of the genetics of that idea. But Bracton came up with that idea. The Bracton Treatise has has that idea in it, right? It's it's actually it's there in Bracton, um, and it's an ingenious attempt to kind of combine English common law with Roman law. So Bracton is actually great to think through when thinking through, you know, like what do property rights actually, what are property rights? How do they work? You know, what, how should we think about them in a systematic way and that kind of thing? My guest today has been Thomas James Sweeney. He's the author of Priests of the Law, Roman Law and the Making of Common Law's First Professionals Available from Oxford University Press. Tom, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks so much, Al. This has been fun. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.